Uh, before I go any further, it just uh, occurred to me a little bit ago, something we have not done in quite a while here. In fact, that during COVID, we put a pause button on it, haven't brought it back full force for a variety of reasons. But greeting each other is always fun, isn't it? So here's what I want you to do. Look at somebody around you with all the love in your heart. Say, you know what? I don't care what anybody else says. I'm glad you're here. Go ahead. Some of you went to great lengths to find a particular person to say that to. I always like that. If you're our guest this morning, maybe this is your first time at First Baptist Church here at home, welcome to you as well. Connect with us using that Connect card. Uh, but I'm so glad you guys are here and just delighted at what God is doing at First Baptist Church. All the opportunities for service and ministry and discipleship coming up. Get plugged in. Participate in the festivals. Reach out to our community. Uh, we just have great things going on. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, find with me 1 Peter chapter 3. Again, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. But just hold your place there for a moment. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. If you were here in 2010, you may recall that I had the first of two cataract surgeries in 2010. The left eye first. Uh, and if you, and you, you'll appreciate this, whether you, if you've had cataract surgery or is even any vision issues at all. So went in for the surgery on, I think, a Thursday, but I recall that next morning, the Friday morning, uh, with the, the patch over my left eye, everything bundled up. I was supposed to be back at the doctor's office for my follow-up that morning, right away, Friday morning. So Kim lovingly tossed me in the car, and we drove to Wilmington and, and went to the doctor's office and sat down. And, uh, and I'll never forget this moment. And this, this particular surgeon had been in practice all his life. As a matter of fact, as it turns out, he wasn't that far from retirement. I don't know if it was because of me, but he did, he did retire not long after that. Uh, but it was interesting because as he was about to take that off, you could actually see the excitement in his face. Like, like he relished this moment. And I didn't really get that at first. But he took that patch off, and then he took the bandage off, and he said, now open your eye and tell me what you see. And I was astounded. The colors were crisp. My vision had clarity. And I, the first thing I said was, wow. And then the second thing I said was, I had no idea what I was missing. And he said, yeah, right? He said, I get that all the time. Because we become accustomed to the... Uh, the opaques, what, what, what cataracts are doing in your eyes. They're clouding things up, and it, it takes time. If I, so sometimes I'm not the sharpest tack on the board, and I remember as I was, I didn't even know I had cataracts at first. I just kept thinking there was something in my vision, there was something in my eyes. I remember driving along, kept, kept clearing up my eyes until I found out the cataracts were growing and it was time for that first surgery. But he said, he acknowledged with me, you know, it's, it's interesting because that's the first response of a lot of people is I had no idea what I was missing. The cataract took all that time to grow, and just like that, it's gone, and I have clarity. I see the colors again, and it was wonderful. God gives us the Bible so we will have clarity on truth and on what he's doing in history. If you take your cues on history and culture from the news or from 
other voices in the culture around us or just by looking at the world and the culture, it'll cloud your vision and cloud your judgment and cloud your understanding about what's going on. And you can quite, you can easily misinterpret what's going on. Uh, that's why there are people in our culture that are pro-Palestinian despite the fact that Hamas, a terrorist, brutal terrorist, evil uh, uh, organization and movement, attacked Israel without provocation. And we see that war going on right now. But when we look into the Word of God, what, what the Bible does is it, it opens a window, pulls back a veil to our culture, our world, our universe, and shows us God's perspective. And suddenly our eyes are opened. We have clarity and we have renewed vision to what's actually happening in the world. And in the case of Israel, we learn the historical place of Israel in the world. We learn that, yes, the Bible teaches Israel will come under attack, not because they've done anything wrong, but purely because they are God's chosen people. Uh, the attack is as much physical war as it is spiritual warfare. And the Bible teaches this will happen. Well, you're not going to get that from the news of the culture, but you get that from the Word of God. And the Bible teaches the role of, history, the role of Israel in history is pivotal, it's critical, and it's part of our heritage as well. See, the Bible teaches that you and I are spiritual descendants. Christians are spiritual descendants of Abraham. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is, was prophesied in the Old Testament and among the Jews. And the Bible teaches that this is what God has against the Jews, is that they had the Word of God, they knew Christ was coming, and they rejected Christ as their Messiah. But God also says that His call will not be abandoned. That they are the people of God, and now Christians come through the Jews. Our heritage as believers is in the Jews. In fact, the Bible teaches that the reason we have the Scripture is because God passed it down through the Jews. And yet in Christ, and in Christianity, and in the church, God fulfills all the promises. He hasn't abandoned the Jews. They are still His chosen people. Christ came through the Jews. We are to pray for the Jews. We are spiritually akin to the Jews. You don't see that in the culture, do you? You don't get that in the world. You get that from the Word of God. This morning as we return to 1 Peter, we're going to see again that Peter counts on his Old Testament Jewish heritage to understand what it means to be a Christian. And what we're going to see Peter do is pull back the cosmic veil of history in Christ. And he does this not only for the persecuted believers of his time, but he does it for all suffering believers of all time. Remember the key themes of the, of the letter of 1 Peter. One is the living hope we have in Christ. And everything else he says is anchored in that living hope. The other is that he is speaking to Christians who are suffering for their faith. Being persecuted for their faith. Uh, he has encouraged them. He has admonished them. He has taught them how to live for Christ, how to answer for Christ in a culture that is hostile against their faith. And what we'll read this morning, he's going to pause a moment and say, but never forget when you suffer for Christ that he has suffered for you. God has not abandoned you. You are, in fact, part of the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in your suffering for Christ, you are partnered with Christ as never before. Your suffering is not an indication that God has abandoned you. If anything, it's an opportunity for God to glorify himself in your life. And it's a reminder that wherever Christians suffer, there is victory coming. Because when Christ suffered, God brought the greatest victory of all 
through his suffering, victory against sin and death. So Peter's going to speak to all of us. And, and it could be that uh, we need to hear this too. He's going to pause in the middle of the moment and pull back that veil, that cosmic veil that shows what God is doing. And I like this too as a reminder that sometimes when you get bogged down in your own struggles and suffering, you know what you need to do? You need to go back to the Bible, pull back that cosmic veil and remind yourself of who God is and who you are in God's story. That's what Peter's going to do with us today. So find there... 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, uh, reading these few verses, but they are rich with content and the reminder of Christ's suffering and his victory, and that all victory comes through suffering for Christians. Peter says, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient, when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it a few, that is eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Sometimes victory requires suffering. But in Christ, suffering will always end in victory. Whatever you're going through in this life, remember Christ suffered for you. And through his suffering, God brought a great, great victory. Uh, let's admit it right up front. This passage of scripture that I just read has some prickly portions, a little bit of puzzling things going on in it uh, that have been given to a, a, a lot of interpretive ideas have been uh, imposed on this passage of scripture. So before we go any further, let, let's be sure we're clear on a few things. Remember, first of all, the Bible always best interprets the Bible. Whenever you draw a meaning out of a scripture, be sure that it is consistent with all that we know in scripture and all that we know, the way God behaves, the way God loves you and treats you. Uh, don't take it just out of context and say, hey, I think it means this, but be sure it fits with the rest of scripture. The Bible best interprets the Bible. And also in this case, we want to be sure it fits with Peter, what he's talking about in his letter. This particular passage of scripture uh, has been vulnerable to people taking it out of context and once removed from, from context, coming up with all very interesting interpretations and applications for this scripture. But we're going to keep it in the context of what Peter is talking about. What is he talking about? He is talking about suffering for Christ will bring victory in the same way that Christ suffered for you, brought victory through the resurrection. Christ is our role model and our reminder that when we suffer for Christ, God doesn't ignore us, God doesn't dismiss us, God instead regards an opportunity for, us to be, for him to be glorified in our lives and for victory to come out of our sufferings. So this morning, remembering that Christ's suffering is the, and his victory is the greatest victory of all, the victory over sin and death, I want to go back to this passage for just a moment. Let's unpack it. Let's put it in the context of, of Peter's conversation. Let's understand it better, and let's see what God wants us to learn here about our suffering. 
And remember what Peter is doing is he is taking a step back and he is pulling back the veil of cosmic history, even making us privy to things that we were not privy to. We wouldn't know otherwise had he not done this and, and God did this for us to put this on Peter's mind to record this in the Word of God and to preserve it in Peter's letter. But Peter wants everyone, and we all need to do this, we need to put our lives in the conversation, the bigger story of God's story and what he's doing. So Peter takes that opportunity for all the believers being persecuted in the first century, and it's for you and I who suffer in the 21st century, especially when we suffer for Christ in a hostile culture. So three things that Peter wants us to see and remember, and three great truths that come out of this story. He's summarizing the drama of Christ's victory over death and sin. Uh, the first thing is that Christ provided, Jesus Christ provided victory over sin and death. Jesus Christ provided victory over sin and death. The first movement in the drama, obviously, is the cross and the resurrection. But look at the way that Peter uh, summarizes it. For Christ also suffered. Now, now he's talking to the Believers in the first century reminding them Christ also suffered, and this is how it went for them. He suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He has put death in the flesh, he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Christ suffered for sins once for all. That's Peter's first point. It was a one-time occasion, never has to happen again. Christ died for your sins one time, so when, we, when you are saved in Christ, that only has to happen one time. And this is a sacrifice and a suffering of Christ that will never happen again. He's not suffering over and over again for the sins of the world. It happened one time in God's cosmic history. At the perfect time, Paul says in the book of Galatians, Christ came to die for us. And he died, he suffered and died for the sins of all. No exceptions. All human beings, Christ died for the sins of all. Opening the opportunity for our salvation, not making uh, salvation automatic, but opening that opportunity. And then he, then he even narrows it down more. The righteous for the unrighteous. Uh, that is to say, the only one who is righteous, the only one who never sinned, died for the unrighteous, the sinner, for you and for me. This underscores the fact that Christ was without sin and he died in your place. Your substitute on the cross was Jesus Christ. He took your sins on the cross. That was Jesus Christ who did that. Then Peter it's as if he's editorializing just a bit. Why did Jesus do that? Why did Jesus do that? To bring you to God. It's a phrase that's drawn from royal courts. And it speaks of a steward or an usher who announces the arrival of a guest or a visitor in the king's court and then walks them all the way up. Brings them to the king. Now let that sink in just a minute. When Christ died on the cross for you, so you would be forgiven of your sins, the, the pure, righteous, sinless Son of God died in your place and my place. You know why he did that? Because he desired to bring you back to God and to do it personally. 
He wants to be the one to usher you in to the presence of your God, your Father, your Creator. You can almost see the joy on his face. And the Bible says every time one person gets saved, the angels sing, there's joy in heaven. Have you ever thought about the fact it starts with Jesus? How excited he must be when that one lost sinner comes to Christ, comes to faith in Christ, is finally, finally saved. And he gets to be the one to usher them into the presence of his Father and say, look who came home today. Peter puts a fine point on it at the end. He died in the flesh, just in case we missed that we're talking about the crucifixion. He died in his body, in the flesh, and then was raised by the Spirit. Well, clearly that's speaking of the crucifixion and the resurrection. But in Peter's mind, he wants to make a point of saying the crucifixion was in the body, the human body, the resurrection was a spiritual new body that was activated by the Holy Spirit of God himself. This packages the entire event of the crucifixion and the resurrection. And it reminds us, it puts a fine note on the fact that the Heavenly Father is faithful to those who suffer to bring about the victory that he plans for all time. Jesus Christ provided victory over sin and death. And he, through his work, provides victory for all of us through the ages. The first stage of the grand story of your life in Christ is your victory over sin and death because of Christ. Because of Christ. And never forget what he did for you. Now and then, we do need to pull back a chair, sit up, open the Bible, remember the cosmic work of Christ in history, and remember this is what he did for us. Every now and then I think we need to get with God and be reminded that this is very personal to Jesus. That he died for your sins and my sins personally. So he could bring, he could bring us home to the Father. And every now and then we need to be reminded that just as he rose from the grave, we will rise from the grave. And just as he saved us from our sins and was crucified and rose for, for us, we can come into the presence of God. Never forget, God hears your prayers because of Jesus Christ. God is receiving your worship today because of Jesus Christ. Because Christ has ushered you into the presence of your God. Then the second stage, Peter says, and this, this is the one that's a little unusual, uh, Jesus Christ proclaimed victory over sin and death. Now, this particular passage raises some puzzles for most interpreters and most Bible students and really any of us that read this before. Look at verse 19. And remember, the last thing is he was made alive by the Spirit. Verse 19, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. There's been a variety of interpretations of that first part. Jesus proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Uh, the first part of it is, is, when did this happen? It's the only place in the Bible this is mentioned. 
And Peter mentions it in passing, but he mentions it as a statement of fact, that as if every Christian of the first century knew that this is a historical event that happened. But he doesn't provide us with a lot of information, at least not in this location right here of when this happened. He doesn't even put in parentheses. So one of the popular interpretations of when this happened is that this happened, that, that Jesus did this while he was in the grave three days, that he left during that time, his body's in the grave, that he went to hell to the spirits in prison, which you have to interpret that as spirits in prison. He went to hell and he proclaimed the gospel to them. And then he rose from the grave. A lot of people think that's the win, but, but what's the problem with that? What's, well, there's a couple of obvious problems to that. Uh, one is we just had the resurrection. <laughs> he just rose from the grave, right? He was crucified for you, for your sins, in the body, and made alive by the Spirit. And, and Peter's talking in sequence here. He's talking about our living hope. So the win seems to be not while he was in the grave, because that's already happened. The win is instead after the resurrection. After the resurrection. So that's the win. The what is that he proclaimed, and then the question is, to who? And they answer each other. The term translated proclaim is not the term that Peter uses anywhere else in his letter for the gospel, for preaching the gospel. Instead, it's proclamation of victory, of the facts at hand, that Christ now has defeated death and sin, risen from the grave, and he has gone to proclaim this victory over sin and death. To who? Spirits in prison who are identified by Peter as particular evil spirits active in the days of Noah. And don't get like that too complicated. What Peter's saying is that in the cosmic picture of history, that part that we're not privy to, when Jesus Christ rose from the grave, somewhere in that time, while he was interacting with his apostles and his disciples on earth before he ascended to the Father, in that time, he went and proclaimed his victory over demons and Satan. He went and preached to them the fact that they were defeated, that sin has been defeated, that death has been defeated, and while God might permit them to be active for a while, they know they are defeated. The conquest of Jesus Christ over sin and death is absolute. No question about it. Once raised from the grave, there could be no question to the demons themselves that they were defeated. When I read that little passage, you have to wonder how the demons took that. And he, and, he, and he identifies particular demons, some demons and some evil spirits active in the days of Noah. You kind of wonder how they took that. In Mark chapter 1, there's a story of Jesus. Early in his ministry, he shows up in Capernaum. He's invited to speak at the synagogue which was common in those days. A traveling rabbi would often be invited to speak at the synagogue. And he's sitting up front, and the Bible says, watch this, the Bible says that Jesus Christ started reading the Scripture and speaking from the Scripture, and suddenly a man in the back who was possessed by a demon shouted out, jumped up and shouted out, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. And Jesus, Mark says, told him to be quiet and cast out the demon, set the man free. But did you notice 
The demon recognized Jesus when he started talking about the Word of God. He had probably not seen Jesus face to face in eons when Satan and his demons were cast out. And suddenly he realizes that's the Son of God. God himself is in this room. So you have to wonder, those demons Jesus proclaimed his victory to, seeing the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God himself, risen from the grave when they thought they'd put him under. They know they're defeated. You know they're defeated. Live like they're defeated. That's our job. To remember that Christ has defeated sin and death and evil in this world. Anything that happens that resembles that is because God's permitting it for a time, and Jesus would say elsewhere, for the purpose of righteousness, for the outcome, for the purposes of God. But God in Christ has defeated sin and Satan and death. And then Peter, suddenly reminded of Noah, he invokes Noah. And he reminds us that our baptism is like Noah on the ark, going through the waters. What's the connection to that? When you were saved and you came to Christ, you were baptized into the body of Christ by immersion. The Bible teaches that is the proper form of baptism. To be baptized is to go under the water and to come back up. And this validates and verifies that once again. Because the image is that when you and I are baptized, once you come to Christ and you're baptized, that's your proclamation in public that death and sin has been defeated. You go down under the water, it proclaims your old self has died just under the judgment of God, just like the sinners of Noah's day died in the flood. You rise up out of the water and it proclaims your new life in Christ just as those eight were saved on the ark as a remnant of God by the grace of God to live again and to live on in the history of God's people. You have risen from the grave just as Christ rose from the grave and your baptism is a proclamation not just to this church, but to history itself, to every evil spirit, that you have been saved, born again in Christ, risen from the grave. And he's already proclaimed what you are proclaiming again. It's the facts of history. Sometimes we forget the facts of history. Christ provided victory over sin and death. When you trusted Christ as your Savior, you proclaimed that victory is true and you showed it to the world through your baptism. And then last, Peter says, Jesus Christ perfected victory over sin and death. Did you notice when we read these verses that they're very active. There's a lot. Jesus is doing a lot. He went, he went, he brought you, he went again to preach, to proclaim. Then he says he's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subjected to him. That's the end of the drama. That's the conclusion because he only did that at the end of going and doing and, and bringing us to God. It's the end of his drama and that's where he remains at the right hand of God. So, so why is he there? What's he doing? His very presence, his power, his sovereignty, and his authority is being exercised over every dominion of creation. Christ himself has all authority, all power, 
all dominion over everything and everyone in creation. Again, Peter is reminding his readers this is a one-time event. The crucifixion, resurrection won't have to be repeated. Now he's certifying it. He's solidifying it just as Christ certified and solidified his sovereignty over all creation. That Christ is king. And that's for all time. And the Bible says elsewhere one of the reasons that he's at the right hand of the Father is to intercede for you and me. He, he prays for us. Uh, he is the, the acknowledgement. His very presence there acknowledges that we belong to him, that he is the sovereign of all creation. That means he's the sovereign of your life and my life. The very presence of Christ in heaven is a reminder to the angels and to, to all of creation that he is Lord and King. Sadly, we forget that sometimes. So sometimes we need to pull the veil off the cosmic drama and one more time take a look and remind ourselves what Christ has done and did for us means that he is our Lord. And when you are suffering and you are struggling then you are questioning you can take your step back and say, Christ Jesus, you are my Lord. You will not abandon me. You will not forsake me. You are in charge of my life, and I will follow Christ. I might not understand the situation I'm in, but I know my God is faithful, and I know my Jesus is sovereign, and I know what he's done for me, and he will not let me go, and he will not let me down, and he will not abandon me. I serve Christ. And I don't know about you, but I want to see the end of the story, don't you? I look forward to the day that we are there, every knee bows, every voice proclaims to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. But we can do that right now with our lives. Bow to him and say, you are my God. You are my Lord. I have nothing to fear in this life. Eugene Peterson is a late pastor, late author, wrote a lot of books, great preacher. Tells an interesting story in one of his books. He said when he was a pastor, he had a woman named Judith that started coming to his church. She was in her 40s. Uh, she had an alcoholic husband, a drug-addicted son. Uh, she was barely hanging on to life. And she, and she was invited by friends to their church. And once she started coming, she was fascinated by what she was hearing. She had never heard the gospel before. She'd never heard about Jesus before. She'd never had friends that cared about her this way before. She'd never heard about uh, being free in Christ, being saved in Christ, and, what Christ, and the victory we have in Christ. She'd never heard of these things. And Peterson says she came once, she came twice. Uh, she kept coming, she kept coming. And finally, he said, she prayed to receive Jesus as her Savior. She gave her life to Christ. And he said the change in her life was extraordinary. And one of the things that she would talk about later in letters to him and to his wife was how excited she was about being a Christian. She wrote, it was all new to me. It was fascinating to me. And the more I learned, the more I grew, the more excited I was about being a Christian and about following Christ. Then later, she wrote the Petersons another letter. And she started talking about trying to help her friends understand that she was following Christ. 
Judith was part of the arts community in their area, and she was a very good artist. And that community in particular scoffed at Christianity, at church, at religion. And friends she thought were good friends started ridiculing her, making fun of her. She was going to go on a mission trip to Haiti, and her best friend made fun of her and said, how can you waste your time and waste your money? That's not what you're supposed to be doing with your life. And others ridiculed her as well. And she wrote to the Petersons, and she said, I don't want to be defensive, I don't want to be argumentative, but I do have a problem knowing what to say. But then as she grew, her letters showed more and more that her faith and her confidence in Christ grew as well. And she learned that in Christ, she can not only withstand the ridicule and the suffering, but she could stand up for Jesus in a loving and kind way and let other people know who, she, who he is and why she's doing what she's doing. Her story had changed, she said. One of the problems that her friends had with Christianity and with religion is they, they, they saw it as, as just ordinary, even backward. And that artists like Judas should be living an extraordinary life. They should be the elites in their neighborhood. Uh, everybody's looking to them for the trends and, and for the art. So they looked down on her and said, why are you embracing such an ordinary, backward way of living? And one of the last letters she wrote to the Peterson, she said, I've come to understand that in Christ, the extraordinary hides behind the ordinary. She says, I'll never forget that first excitement, that first time. These are her words. I pulled back the veil and saw that behind the ordinary things of religion was the extraordinary story of the gospel and of what Christ had done for me. Now I understand who I am since I understand who he is. And she said, anytime I ever forget, I pull back the veil and I take a look at what Christ has done for me. Christians, do you need to do that today? Isn't it good just to remember that what we see is not all there is and that what Christ has done is for us and forever. He is sovereign. He is your Lord. And maybe today, what you need to do is one more time bow to him. Say, forgive me, God, for trying to write my own story. Forgive me, God, for thinking all the pictures and all the book is about me. Forgive me, God, for that. Come back to him. Find his forgiveness. And today, once again, say, I follow Christ. Even in the midst of my suffering, I follow Christ. And ask him to glorify himself in your life. If you're in this room and at home, and maybe you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, you just heard the gospel. You just heard what Jesus Christ did for you, a sinner in need of a Savior. He died on the cross for you. God raised him from the grave. Today would be the day to trust Christ as your Savior. I'm going to pray for all of us, and then I'm going to pray a prayer for you who would trust Christ, and just to ask you to pray the same prayer in faith and give your life to Christ today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pause in this time, in this moment, acknowledging, God, the grand work of God in Christ, what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. We praise you and thank you for the victory over sin and death that we experience when we come to Christ, when he gives us new life, and we praise you for that. And God, I pray for each person here and at home. We call ourselves a Christian. Maybe we know without a doubt we've trusted Christ as our Savior. God, forgive us if we've not been living our story by your book. Forgive us, Father, 
And God, I pray today we would, you would speak to our hearts if we need to recommit our lives to Christ, if we need to once again bow to your Lordship, we need to remind ourselves who our sovereign is, Father. God, show us that. And I pray we would do that today. Other needs, other burdens we might have, God, we would give those to you today. Other decisions we need to make, maybe it's to join fellowship with First Baptist Church. Father, lead us to do that. As you are our Lord, we do that in faith. And maybe there's one here or at home God, that today in faith, they would put their trust in Christ to forgive them of their sins. They would acknowledge what Christ has done for them on the cross. With them, I would pray this prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that I can't save myself. And Jesus, I believe, I know, you died on the cross for me, for my sin. You took my sin to the cross. And you're alive today because God has raised you from the grave. So Jesus, I ask, you would come into my heart, into my life. You would forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me of unrighteousness. Give me a home in heaven. And today, Jesus, I follow Christ for the rest of my life. Whatever decisions we have made today, God, I pray we would follow through with those decisions to honor Jesus. And it's in his precious name we pray.